Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few Podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube and wondering uh, why I am dressed like this, I just got the, the Halloween dates mixed up and any excuse to to put on a flying suit. Oh, so I thought you had the F-18 parked outside, mate, for after the, uh, after yes, the podcast. Yeah, but, yeah, it would be nice, mate. They're a bit of a vintage car these days, so a little bit of a fixer-upper. I don't quite have the budget to to keep it on the road, so <laughs> uh, maybe I'll just chuck it on a pole uh, out the front. Look nice. Uh, Sean, how are you, mate? Good, another, mate. another exciting guest today for us. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. No, going great, mate. Going great. Excellent, excellent. Cool. Well, today's guest is is one of the few, probably not by choice, one of those individuals where life kind of started off a little bit differently. Uh, So we're really excited today. I've got a feeling Sean and I were talking before the podcast, we're probably going to find ourselves out of our depths pretty quickly today. So I'd just like to um, introduce our guest now. Anya, is it UL? Yes, correct. Anya UL, thank you so much for joining Sean and my myself today. We're really excited to dissect your life a little bit and uh, see if we can learn a little bit about what's probably a unique perspective on life. Uh, so, Anya, tell us a little bit about your life story. You're not originally born in Australia, and I suspect you had quite an interesting journey. How did your connection with Australia start? Yes. Uh, well, I just wanted to say first and foremost, thank you very much, Sean and Bo, for having me here. I'm very excited to have a chat about my journey and what I am doing. Yes, I was born in a refugee camp in Kenya, and I moved to Australia when I was 10 years old. So as you mentioned earlier a little bit, my journey started from influence of war and conflict and then having the opportunity to move to Australia to start a better life. And so my journey has started from there and which has led me to taking part in my education and then also developing into a sport person and now in the fashion industry as well. So it's been a better bit of a roller coaster in a sense, but I think most of my journey and resilience has brought me here to your show today. But that's amazing. What's it like? Being born in a refugee camp, I mean, right there, that is a story that is very, very different to billions of people and a story that many of us uh, Aussies wouldn't be familiar with. How, how can you explain it? I mean, it must have been a like a fascinating childhood. Was it, was it something that was sort of fearful or fun? How, what are your memories of that time? Yeah, well, it's so funny that you asked me that because for me, the refugee camp was a home. I never really got see there there are a lot of issues that I've seen out on um, on television as a problematic I never saw it that way because that was the only home that I ever saw and where I grew up for the first 10 years I, ha- I have family there I had friends and even though the school was not the most flexible situation for me I still really enjoy being the refugee camp and I 
loved it in a sense that it was the only home that I knew at the time. And so when I talk to people and people are very curious and said, oh, my God, you know, it must have been hard living in a refugee camp. I said, well, actually, it wasn't hard for me because I never knew that there was another world that exists um, from the refugee camp. And so I had memories that will never be forgotten. It's where my life started and it's what remind me of where I came from before I have this life now that I do. So it's quite different for people who are growing up in Western countries. It's very, you know, sad that I've been born in a refugee camp, grew up there. For me, I think it's part of my resilience and it's a part of, part of me. I think that's an incredible perspective too that you put on it is that it's about perspective, your perspective, you looking from your side and you've got a very, you know, what it sounds like quite a fond memory of that experience. But when I say myself, you know, looking at that, thinking about that, someone growing up in a refugee camp, it it has a very different potential meaning because I don't have that experience at all. And my perspective is completely just left of field in comparison and such a, such a great, uh, you know, great attitude towards it and and sounds like, yeah, quite a fond memories. But what was it, what was it that gave you the opportunity to end up coming to Australia when you were 10? So, my uh, my relative, my cousin, my first cousin, had the opportunity to be given a visa to come to Australia, and I was lucky enough to be included in that visa and to come here and have a better life, I suppose, and opportunity for education as well. And so, I mean, for me, it's not a decision that I would have made. I'm, I was a kid, I kind of just tagged along and said, look, there's a great opportunity to move to Australia and, we, you know, you and your sister can come. And that was it. That was the story, how I find myself here. Great. And, and then, so obviously you said you came here to, to you know, and education was a part of your journey, but education, sport, you know, fashion. What was it about uh, education that you, you know, you saw? Was it an opportunity that you saw in, in having a good education or was it with a particular passion that you wanted to, to chase down? Well, look, when you are in a refugee camp or growing up, mostly if you grow up in a very a poverty state, Education is often a key to many people. We are brought up with, you know, encouragement that education will take you far and it will open doors to economic independency, it will open doors to more opportunities. And so even being brought in a refugee camp and for many other refugee communities out there or people out there, that's the hope. And so when you don't have the level of education that can take you further, we thrive growing up knowing that we want more. We want that education so that we can better our life. And I think I saw it at an early age being in a refugee camp that the funding that was put into a refugee camp didn't really level up the education system. So a lot of people didn't really get that um, formal education, including myself. I probably had two years of education, you know, growing up in a refugee camp. And so I really tried for that and I saw it as a way. So when I came to Australia, it was already ingrained into me that education is a foundation, particularly young women from a cultural background that I came and also being a refugee camp. Often we are not the first to be given opportunity to go to school. And so when I came here and education was free and there was no barriers for me to get education except language barriers that I face, 
I had to rethink and I had to find a way to really make education a foundation for me, but also making sure that I'm involved in extracurriculum that can allow me to expand my personality and being part of a community as well. And so that was the mindset for me. And then I guess struggling from intergenerational issues when I grow up in Australia, language barriers, trying to integrate into the new society and also being far behind from local students. So already I was struggling in school as much as I wanted that education. It was struggle. And so I had to find a new way to fit into the community, into my local community. And that's how I found the love for sport. And so that's how I started getting involved. And I also, I came from a background where women were not allowed to play sport as well. And so that even just gave me that extra push to say that, I am going to do it. And so that's how it kind of started off. And what was that like? Like you're, you're obviously in a refugee camp. You're in a very closed environment. Everything's very familiar, lots of routine, lots of habit. And then this little 10-year-old girl uh, hopped in a taxi, went to the airport, flew to Australia. Did, I mean, did you have a good appreciation of what was going on? Like what, was it, what were the emotions and feelings that went through you at that stage? And then what was it like when you got here? Oh, my God. I think I was still in disbelief when uh, we got told that we were leaving the refugee camp. Actually, I think I cried and I said I did not want to leave because I was like, I have no idea where you're taking me. I don't want to leave my family and friends. And then I remember arriving in Australia and it was just buildings and and just new cultural shock. You know, I, I grew up in refugee camp where obviously predominantly of African descent were dark skins. And so I was also kind of used to just seeing dark skin colours and then being moved to come to Australia and then suddenly I became the minority. I was seeing white skin. And so that was the first shock for me too, to see that, oh, my God, there's other different types of skin colour that exist a lot. And so that was one part of confronting and saying, wow, I'm the minority now. And the second part, it was the nature, the way the country is built. It was it was memorable. It was scary. It was shocking. Uh, so I, I definitely had different type of emotion when I first arrived in Australia, but it was very intriguing and I was excited for a new journey as well. That's amazing. That's amazing. So Let's uh, let's fast forward a little bit. You know, you, you talk about the fact that you're involved with fashion now, and I watched uh, I watched a video as part of the um, research, and there was a bit that you said there about somebody basically said to you, "You just you don't know how to dress." Did that, did that inspire you to like get into fashion or something when someone insulted you about your dress sense or like what happened there? You know, I've always came from a sport background. So growing up, even going through full um, university, I was always on my tracksuit. I was just a tomboy at heart. And so when I decided to participate in fashion, started with beauty pageant, my, and I agree with that person, my fashion was <laughs> horrible. I just needed someone to tell me. And I, I remember I turned up at one show and I had different weird colours mix up and you see all these glamour girls got their fashion together. And then he go to me, he's like, you have a great personality, but the sense of fashion is really horrible. And I said, oh, wow, okay. I had to go back now and rethink about my fashion. But I think the change came about when I was told that I, 
you know, Australia wasn't ready to represent a minority at an international pageant. And that's where the epitome of me wanting to be an advocate in the fashion industry came in. But yes, so eventually I think I find my way and I can definitely say I dress more appropriate accordingly to that person now. <laughs> it takes a hard truth, doesn't it, Sean? Every now and again, someone just needs to tell you something to your face and to just go, ah, some people, you know, shrink under that under that sort of feedback. And then uh, other people blossom into it. And you obviously blossomed into it, Anya. Yeah, I think I think I think the comment for me was you need to pull your head in. I was like, huh? <laughs> that was that was the comment that got me started to go, okay, get out of your ego and start being a little bit more open, a bit more receptive of other people. But uh, so so tell us a little bit more, Anya, about the um obviously the the you know part of your fashion is and and part of your purpose, set by the sounds of it, in is is to do with, you know, supporting women, it's fashion, it's migrants, it's refugees. Like give it give us a little bit of background of what is it that drives you and drives that passion in you to really be an advocate for for others and support others. Yeah, I, I think what drives me is that sense of inclusivity and equitable opportunities for everyone. I think I've been, you know, lucky enough and privileged in my position to create many network and to have the opportunity to connect with different cultural background and be able to thrive in my own journey. And often I feel that some people, not by choice, don't have that opportunity by by circumstances that they don't have an opportunity to thrive or to get, you know, be in different industries. And so for me, it's always been about what can I do to support the communities or individuals who don't have that opportunity. And so that was my drive when I got into the fashion industry. I wanted to do it to just build my confidence. But when I got in there, I realized the the lack of diversity that exists and it fashion industry is an employment opportunity that can create so much more for our culture and linguistic diverse communities in Australia and that should be open their doors commercial wise to really create more diverse spaces. And so I saw the possibility of contributing to change within the fashion industry and saw that opportunity to expand it and be the voice and create opportunities for cultural linguistic diverse communities, whether, you know, our Indigenous communities, refugee communities, and to speak to the modelling industries and say, look, All you need to do is open your eyes and create those opportunities because we have so many talented um, out there that are not being utilised because we're not expanding. And so that has where my passion has come from, just looking at ways to make sure that equitable opportunities are being represented to all Australians. And how do you think, Anya, assimilation is is going in Australia? You're obviously uh, the chair of the Australian National Committee on Refugees for Women. You're close to these minority communities within Australia. What are some of the challenges that you see these communities facing, both in terms of acceptance and in terms of the the communities themselves adapting to Australia and and us culturally? Yeah, to correct you there, but I wouldn't call it assimilation in a sense because I think that Pam just kind of painted that everyone should forget who they are and assimilate into the culture, the Australian culture, it's a terminology that has been used against our Aboriginal um, communities for many years. So I, I will reframe that and say 
many of the cultural linguistic, when we talk about refugees or migrants, and I've worked in the refugee sector over the last seven years, is that they all want the opportunity to be part of Australia in many ways. What makes Australia so great is that we have our own cultures that we can implement, but we can also represent the Australia that we all see. And so a lot of the refugees that I've worked with want to contribute, but they will also want to be proud of their culture. And so a lot of them just want that opportunity to be part of something, to be part of a community. And what we are doing is saying that you can integrate in a way that makes sense to you, that you can be proud of your background, but also you are proud to be an Australian and you are proud to have equal opportunities as all Australians as well. And so that is the message that we do push out and the message that I push out through my work, whether in the fashion industry or in the refugee sector, is that you can integrate in a way that makes sense to you. You don't have to forget your culture in order to be seen as an Australian. No, I, mean, I can definitely see that distinction. It's about you're not necessarily assimilating, you're obviously bringing it as making it parting or diluting that history. It's about embracing the culture alongside the Australian culture. And uh, It's interesting though, isn't it? It raises all these really interesting tangents and conversations around what is culture. I travelled all over the world for the last 26 years and I've had the wonderful opportunity to, be, uh, to go to Kenya and spend a, a few months there. I've travelled all through the Middle East. I've lived in Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea. And what's wonderful is that humans are generally kind and don't really care too much about the environments that they're in. But there is a an overarching kind of culture, like a, these norms that, that we all conform to. And I think what's... Um, you, you made a really great point there, and you'd never even thought of it. Assimilation being a like a hey, this is our culture. You must you must be the Australian culture. But there are challenges though, because certain people in certain countries, whether you're Kenyan or Australian, wherever you are within those groups of people, we do tend to create like a bit of a model, don't we? We do, we do, and I agree with you. And often that's not wrong in a sense. Like you said, you've travelled across the globe. And let's say if you were to go to Kenya and you find other Aussies suddenly there and they speak English and you don't speak Australian, you're going to tend to go toward that route because you already relate to them. They speak your language. They are familiar with who you are. You're going to go there. And then eventually when you are comfortable, you might then expand that perspective and be able to connect with other people. And that is the same concept here for many migrants and refugees that come to Australia, is that often when you arrive in the new country, things are different. You, foremost, if you don't know the language, you're likely to go find your own group, your community that already is here, that you could just connect with quickly to support you. I mean, in my case, when we came to Australia as well, that was the story. We were placed in, um, I think in the city for three months and we felt, my family, we felt so lost, particularly me, because we didn't find any community that could relate to us. And it was so hard to even go around because the language barriers were still predominantly active in our own journey. And so I remember us just trying to find out we have an Sudanese communities in Western Sydney, like calling out, you know, and we wanted to move closer to them because they understood us. But that, that didn't mean that we didn't want to integrate it in a sense. So you're right. It's often that's the case that 
you don't you can't control it i think and there's a, there is definitely a a bit of a perception and i think it's improving but definitely historically a perception that that when people migrate to or immigrate or migrate sorry to australia that they can kind of go to that community and and isolate themselves from australia and it's like oh we should you know force people to speak english or you know involve themselves and stuff and my kids grandparents moved here from from argentina and the same thing they needed to find a community because they'd left all their family back over there they had their two kids and themselves they didn't speak any english they started off by finding a community that they could connect with because community is such an important part of the human psychological need but then what they did obviously they then started to introduce themselves as well it wasn't either or it wasn't isolating it wasn't saying i'm going to just have my own culture and sit in this little bubble it was like okay one as you said once i started to get comfortable you start to stretch out into that and you can have both and it's uh that's been a that's definitely something that you've clarified or, or give me some learning on today for sure Absolutely. And I think it should, and that should be the way. I think we often just have to reflect and put ourselves in someone's shoes. I don't think that anyone have an intention to come and just isolate themselves because you will also be facing so many barriers if you do that. And so often in the case of many refugees here, it got to do with that community connection. And then often it got to do with resources and the people that, you know, so it's very, you know, a very conflict situation where it need to be analyzed and break down. And so that type of conversation do drive me and get people to really rethink. That's great. And so to tell us a bit more about uh, your yeah, business ventures, you, I believe you have uh, Miss Sahara and uh, Anya Model Management. So tell us what got you to start those and, and how are you tracking in that entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, it has been, you know, just embarking on this business and entrepreneurial journey has been quite interesting. And I think I find my way just driving in through because of my experience and because I saw the possibility to start something as well and, you know, be an advocate in everything that I do. So most of my ventures has a social impact connection to it. I started the Miss Sahara. It was one I saw that there was a lack of representation for African women in Australia in the beauty industry. And and so when I competed through my own experience, I really wanted to create a pageant that has an education and leadership aspect to it as well, but also will be promoting diversity and inclusion of African women in the fashion industry. So I started and it went successfully for the first year And then I start to also recognize that I was now not really representing minority communities that were underrepresented in the industry. And so I really had to think critically and said, what can I do to represent other communities? And that's where Anir Model Management was born. And the idea that now I'm not just focusing on the African communities, but I'm actually focusing on communities who are underrepresented. We're talking about Aboriginal uh, community, um, Southeast Asian, Muslim communities. And so Anir Model Management is a modeling agency that's ethically diverse shape, size, and age. And it's an agency, one of its kind in Sydney, and saying that, you know, we're here and we're going to represent those communities that don't have a representation in the industry. How's that been received? And how's that been received by the industry? I don't think it's been received well yet. Yet, I don't think we have reached the top agency and brand that we want to reach. 
it is one of those elements that you have to reflect when you start a business. Obviously, we start with a vision and the idea is that we have a social impact vision of it. But is that translating to the businesses and companies and designers that are out there? We don't know yet. I don't know why, but I hope that will be the case because I think they all have responsibility to create employment opportunities for culture and linguistic diverse communities. And I'm here to make sure that all those big brands, David Joan, Maya, all of them are listening to make sure that they are doing their part. So Anya, reflecting on your experiences and being motivated to represent diverse communities, what is it about the community outside of those just everyday Australia? What are some of the issues that you see? Let, let's just say I wasn't particularly multicultural in mindset. What are some of the challenges and things that you see that you, you wish weren't there or could be improved? Uh, I think there's so many, but obviously we can't address all of them. And that's why I say for my own journey, it's a journey of promoting diversity and inclusion because I was raised up in Western Sydney. I have seen so much diverse communities. And like I said, a lot of the communities that arrive in Australia, take one example, some of them might arrive in Australia with so much experience within their industries, could be in the fashion or degrees. But when they come to Australia, most of them will have to start over again with new qualification which then it makes it look like as if they don't have the qualification to get a job in a certain area. That is already a huge setback that we see. And so some of, most of Australia might not even see that. They would just assume that why aren't you getting a job or this? They would have to go back to study again. They would have to retrain again in their own industry. And it doesn't come easy. So that's just a small element of part of it that with, I know of many women that I've worked with that have come with qualification and their qualification are non-existent. They have to restart again. So those are just small little issues. And then the other one, obviously, is language barrier. Maybe now with the young people, it's a bit easier because if they go to school, it'd be easy for them to learn quickly. Uh, but also they will still be behind in terms of connection um, already, let alone their parents would struggle the most because anyone knows once you're like teenager and over, it's hard to learn English quickly. And, and so the parents will have the different struggle as well. So there are so many elements that exist around that, most Australian won't understand, but these are just small examples that we do deal with and we do recognise. It's definitely the case. I mean, even when uh, when I was, I think I was 16 and uh, my dad was a pilot here in Australia, uh, had to move over to, we moved over to Germany uh, for just about a year. And he, and again, we didn't have the language, you know, we, we struggled in our teens, my, my siblings and I to learn it but my dad had to learn it had to be able to communicate it on the radio when he's flying you know airliner with 220 passengers on board and and so that i saw him struggle with learning that you know same thing we we tended to connect to the other pilots that were in germany as well and then gradually start to kind of you know get out to the community so definitely know that from experience that that he had to retrain he had to relearn everything but he had to do it in a new language as well which was which was incredibly difficult not to mention that when you're flying in europe there's multiple languages that you need to be able to communicate to different towers and stuff. You know, we talk in business and we talk about effective communication, you know, in, in environments where culturally it's pretty bland. I think there's some, some, some incredible lessons that we can take out of journeys like Anya's when 
when communication is a genuine issue, not not just a, where you put the dot on the your full stops and your decimal points and everything else. I think that 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 concept of communicating simply and sticking to the to the bigger picture and themes, you know, thematics, rather than just getting. I think in business we just get so caught up in the detail and, and just try and communicate too much because then you you, know, you you would experience this. A lot can be said just in body language and a smile and uh, the way that we sit around a table, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I said, but you said it right. It's all down to that understanding and communication, being able to translate what you see as well. Businesses do make it very hard. You know, in a, we are narrow focused. This is what we want. This is what it is. And that's how you ended up not really catering to all your diverse communities or individual because you're just focusing on one area. I mean, in the case of the fashion industry, what I see is that obviously majority of um, are white Anglo. And so most of the designers and marketing people are focused on that, just on that without even try to open the doors and things outside the box. So those relate into how you communicate your message, how you, you know, try to interact with different communities as well. So absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Boo, too. So I remember I remember when I was in Germany one time, that thing that can get lost in translation, not through necessarily the language barrier. So we had some kids that lived a couple of doors up and my younger brother and I were, were you know, we we're out riding our bikes or something as we did. Um, and we have a different type of humor than what Germans have, right, is what I found out. And it was like some guy yelled at us because we were riding around this unit apartment he yelled at us because he was getting something out of his van he was delivering and we came past and he kind of went whoa and then uh, i jokingly said to my brother said uh oh look the, the van's still running let's jump in and, and nick it you know <laughs> and they're like oh no no you can't do that and, you know, and we're like oh it's a joke and they go what is a joke and I'm, we're just like it was this total total lost in translation like the, the they got the language they got the words but they didn't get the meaning at all and they've just that was completely over their heads you know so again that that communication piece is it's just so, so important life, you know it comes down to that with the extreme views i think intentions are so important aren't they like it's uh what are you trying to achieve and and, and having forgiveness in the way that you communicate like like in that in that example there you know sean clearly this guy had a mindset around bratty teenagers getting around on their, you know, BMX bandit style, it causing trouble, you know, rather than just, hey, here's a couple of nice kids yeah. just having a bit of a joke. Um, and, and Anya, you're very, you're obviously very positive, Anya. I think no matter where you were in the world, you would be smiling, you would be forgiving, <laughs> you would be accepting. And that creates sort of a gravitas of itself. What's your advice for people who are struggling to find happiness or, or to find that purpose? Like, what can you share with us about your own journey there? Ah, what can I share? Great question. I mean, look, for me, I think people are different individuals. Even you would, someone who came from UK and probably had the same pathway as me will have a different, a different point of view. So I think for you to be happy or to have a purpose in life, you truly have to understand yourself and appreciate what you have in life. I've had made it a part of my journey to always reflect on my journey, where I came from and what I have now. But also my values have been able to guide me and really drive me to 
think critically about what I want in life. So I think my advice would be to always just really reflect on what you have, be grateful. And I think one of the issues that I recognize in Western countries, particularly, um, and in Australia, as privileged as we are as a country, a lot of us in Australia don't recognize how privileged we are and sad to see sometimes. So I think people should be able to reflect where they are, the opportunities that they have, and then let that drive you because that's the only way in life. We shouldn't be looking at the negative aspect of it rather than positive elements. Yeah. I think that's that again. That's something that we see a lot. I think there's, uh, given that we've had a pretty, uh, pretty strong. You know, Australia's been pretty strong. Had economic growth for 25 years. You know, we've obviously had some COVID stuff going on, but in the scheme of things, people still have a roof over their head. They've got you know food, the shelter. They've they, there's job opportunities, even if not in certain industries, there's other opportunities. So, you said the word you know, gratitude. I think that's something that I had to learn uh, in my journey too. Is is to be grateful for what you have rather than focusing on what you don't have. There's always going to be something you don't have and there's going to be much more of things you don't have than you do. But it's that thing of as soon as you focus on that, you're in a lack mindset. But being grateful and lack mindset can't exist at the same time. And that's the one thing that I've learned is that that having that gratitude for what you do have and recognizing that, even the small things, being grateful for those things is something that is I think really important when you acknowledge it every day. And there's a there's a little process that my partner uh, Chloe and I do is uh, on our glass splashback in the kitchen. We write something every day that we're grateful for, and it does it pulls you to having to think. Some days it's really hard to find because you're not feeling a hundred percent positive or upbeat, and so it's sometimes you're like, oh, but there's always something. And then once you have one, there's another one, and then there's another one, and there's another one, and it starts that. Yeah, you can't control life. That's the you can't control it. All of us through our life will experience some, you know, issues, conflicts and so forth. But if we were to focus on those negative elements every single day, you won't get out of the bed. And so you got to find a reason why you should get out of bed. So, And that's the purpose piece, isn't it? You've got to have, a, you've got to have something intrinsically driving you. And, and I guess it's a big part of, you know, what we talk about on the few, a very big theme is what we see is the few are those that are actually living with purpose and they're, yeah. they're, they're living for something greater than themselves because there's only so much, you know, selfishness that we can have and then it becomes very hollow and, and, and very non-rewarding. When you do everything for you, everything becomes personal. Yeah. When you're doing it for everyone else, it just, it just is. It's just a situation. I mean, isn't that what they say? But it's just like in leadership, when we talk about leadership, leaders eat last. If you're a true leader in everything that you do, you make sure that the people who you are catering to are foremost the one that you're catering to. Mm. So, yeah. How do you define yourself as a leader, Anya? How would you describe yourself? So how I describe I, my leadership is that my purpose is to put everyone above my needs, but it's not that a sense that I'm not looking after myself, that I am confident enough to look at myself, look after myself, but also where everything that I do, it's about catering for those who I need to cater to. And so that's how I describe my leadership. And I describe it as a self-leadership. As a leader, there's a different First is understanding what is self-leadership is to you. And so my self-leadership is making sure that I build that foundation where I know my purpose is to serve others and address the need of others before I can really think about what I need to do on myself. So that's how I form it. 
Um, absolutely love it. I mean, again, it, it's such a common theme. I know that you know, Bill and I are, are very outwardly focused in in a sense of of supporting others and helping them to grow and develop and succeed. And there's so much reward from doing that. You know, when when you realise that once you get your head out of the proverbial backside, and it's not all about ourselves, and we start actually doing that, the more I've, that I've done that in my journey as well, it has been such a rewarding, so much more reward from that, so many more relationships created from that and and it's awesome. So clearly you've had a a very colourful journey, different things you've been been through, experiences, you know, a shock to the system in a change in a whole different culture and country and environment and and all that sort of stuff and clearly you would have learnt a few things over your lifetime. If you could go back to that 10-year-old version of yourself and with some of the lessons that you know now, what would you tell her? To not be afraid with my journey now, people think that somehow I'm not vulnerable or I'm not afraid, you know, I'm a risk taker and stuff, but all of us have inside us a small little fear that pull us back sometime. I would definitely tell myself, don't, you know, don't fear anything, don't be afraid and everything, there's a possibility in everything you do. Yeah. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organisation for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. That's amazing, Anya. Hey, thanks so much for sharing your life with us and giving us some insight into your journey. And you can really get a sense of of purpose. And, And Sean and I have observed with everyone in the few, there's just this deep engagement, soulful engagement. In, in what they're trying to do and the impact they're trying to make on the world. And you certainly embodied that. So it was lovely having you on the podcast today, Anya. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anya. Well, thank you guys for having me. I definitely enjoyed the chat. It's been amazing. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you very much. Speak to you again. Speak soon. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.